thank you for playing along. And there's no, just eat the stuff, right? Eat the stuff and drink the stuff. You don't have to wait for me. This is just, we're enjoying this in our midst. It's a celebration kind of a thing. There are some leftovers. If there are leftovers on your, uh, on your table, you have to eat them all before you leave. That's just the way it goes. We're locking the doors. <laughs> so enjoy those. Uh, and hey, today is a day about celebration and all that this stuff means. And last night we looked at the rebel Jesus. And uh, that was inspired actually from a, an email I got, a mass email from Pete Enns. I don't know if you got that too, Lauren. Um, but Pete Enns is a, you know, he's kind of a rebellious scholar. Actually, he's just a scholar. <laughs> and he, he just went where the, where the research took him and started asking questions and saying things out loud about what he was discovering. And uh, those things um, didn't fit well with traditional ways of seeing things and interpreting the Bible, kind of like Jesus got in trouble. And just like Jesus got in trouble, which ended up killing him uh, for Pete Enns, it ended up uh, changing his career. He gets fired from a seminary that, you know, he was the poster child for. And so uh, last night, uh, we talked about the rebel Jesus, that who he really was. He wasn't, he wasn't this Hallmark uh, movie kind of Jesus that was just a warm hug going everywhere. He actually came to change the world. And he changed it uh, with nonviolent love. And so he wasn't for violence. He wasn't for violence physically. He wasn't for emotional violence. He wasn't for verbal violence. So he, he was all about treating everybody with respect, with our words. That's hard to do in our culture, isn't it? Uh, I mentioned last night, on our way up here, we witnessed road rage. And it was questionable. Like, we had to slow way down because... There was somebody in a car next to us, and she was kind of going slow over the Southern Crossing Bridge, and there was this Lexus that had somewhere to be right behind her. The Lexus has nothing to do with it. That's just the car, <laughs> right? Uh, so anyway, uh, as soon as, no, not even when there was enough room between these two cars uh, for this Lexus guy to get around, he like cuts me off to cut in through and then immediately starts to edge into the other one's lane and cuts her off, then slows way down, and this kind of went back and forth like this all the way to the Sonoma turnoff. It was crazy. We were like, I don't think he's drunk. I think he's mad. Well, in our world, and of course, then she was trying to play along. The other driver was trying to push back and all that. And that's kind of how it is in our world. But the way of Jesus is, is not about that. It's not to increase the violence in the world is to increase shalom and peace in the world. So that was last night, and that kind of rebellion kind of stuff gets us in trouble. And if you didn't know that Jackson Brown, the rock star, had a song called The Rebel Jesus, which I did not know until this week, uh, go on to last night's uh, podcast, uh, go on the Crosswalk website and check it out. I got a link there for you, and it's really a remarkable song. Today we're shifting gears. And today we're talking about incarnation and what is this thing. And I love playing with this word. It's not original to me. Somebody else came up with the idea. But when we look at this word, God is nowhere, uh, that's how a lot of people feel. But what Christmas is all about is to say not God is nowhere, but God is now here. And it's just one little difference in the way we look at the word changes how we understand what's being said. And that's part and parcel to what we're getting at today. We're going to take a look at John's prologue, meaning the first few verses of the Gospel of John, what it has to say about Christmas. 
Now, I need to let you know that John is the last gospel to be written. It was written somewhere after 90 A.D. or C.E. Uh, so long after Jesus had come and gone, and long after the other gospels were written. The very first gospel that was written was called Mark, and Matthew and Luke were built off of Mark. That's why they look a lot and sound alike, alike in so many ways. But an interesting thing about Mark, the very first gospel, which was written somewhere in the late 60s CE, is when it comes to the birth of Jesus, Mark says absolutely nothing. Not a word. Then you turn to Matthew, and you read Matthew's account of the Christmas story, and Jesus uh, is born in Bethlehem because that's where David lived when the whole story went down. There's no traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They just stayed in Bethlehem because that's where David lived and that's where Mary lived. And so that's the story that you have there. And then they have to go to Egypt and all that and the wise men enter the picture in Matthew's story. In Luke's story, a different rending, uh, rendering of the story. The story starts up in Nazareth, uh, up in the northern part of the country. Mary gets the call, uh, tells Joseph who's up there somewhere in Nazareth. Uh, they have to get to Bethlehem because that's where the city of David is. And so they have to make this treacherous journey to get there. So when we look at these stories and we recognize Mark didn't even have a story, and Matthew and Luke's don't really jibe together, even though our pretty decorations in the Christmas story and all that stuff, we push them all together. They really don't. And just looking at that can cause us some cognitive dissonance. So what I want to tell you is, uh, we need to be Eastern in our orthodoxy. And we need to think like Eastern people, which is narrative-oriented, which is looking at the story and trying to hear what the story is telling us. That's the important thing to take home. We in the Western world and our Western minds are so scientific-driven, so data-driven, that we go after every little word and variable, and it gets us into trouble in times like this, because we're not supposed to read it like that. We're supposed to read these stories for the meaning that's trying to be conveyed, that Jesus came into the world in the worst possible circumstances. Last night I shared the image of if we had a modern-day uh, Christmas card cover that would be like the manger scene. It would not be a manger scene. It would be a truck stop on I-5 right after Thanksgiving, <laughs> right? <laughs> Awful, <laughs> right? That's the context because we're supposed to see that God chose to show up in that kind of a space that was so wanting because what that communicates about God is that God is with us no matter what and that's really important but today we're taking a different look today we're going to John John also doesn't have a birth narrative per se he gets very poetic in his prologue uses words that are very flourishy and flowery but very dense so let's check them out. This is John's prologue. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Well, when we see this word, and it's capitalized, that's a, an appropriate translation, word. 
uh, we are we're immediately taken to what tradition has given us. Sometimes word means Bible, depending what church you go to. The word of God is the Bible. And so we think, is that what's being communicated? Are we supposed to think the Bible has been around that long? Well, that's not quite right. And so then we think, well, maybe the word, since this is at the beginning of John, and we know that he's going to be talking about Jesus, the word must certainly be Jesus. And so we think about Jesus as the word. But I want to challenge you to think bigger than that that there's something bigger going on here. You have Jesus Christ, who we celebrate today. But Christ is bigger than Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name, <laughs> as I've said several times before. Christ is something bigger. And if I were to have you think about this, Christ and Word are actually the two words that maybe we need to join together. That Jesus was flesh and blood, but there was something bigger happening that John is calling the Word. And anytime we see this Word, and he's talking about there at the very beginning of creation, we can't help but think of the creation story itself. Where Jesus, or where, where the story starts off, God speaking uh, creation into being. So this Word, this Christ, this presence of God is really talking about bringing into reality that which was somehow spiritual and somehow divorced from that physical reality, that Christ is that incarnation-y thing. Does that make sense? So anytime we see the presence of God in something, we're seeing Word of God. We're seeing Christ manifest, and that's what we're looking at uh, today. So um, today I'm more curator. Uh, dabbling a little bit of my own stuff, but I came across a reading this week that was so good and so rich. I wanted to lift some things out for you from that. So I'm going to read more than I usually do. And uh, one of the people I'm going to talk about, um, give you a quote from, is Richard Rohr. He's, uh, I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr. Uh, I think he's kind of like Tom Ord, where you've got two incredibly brilliant people, but also incredibly down to earth. Uh, no pretense, uh, just being who they are and saying things as they see them. And it comes out uh, sometimes threatening to orthodoxy in some ways. Many, many years ago, Richard Rohr and others founded the Center for Action and Contemplation. And his desire was, as kind of following in the lines of Thomas Merton, after Thomas Merton passed away, um, uh, Richard Rohr kind of took up that mantle. It was uh, kind of a modern-day Elijah-Elisha thing, in my opinion. And uh, Richard Rohr's been running with this ever since. He's a Franciscan friar. And he recognized that we had a problem when we just focused our brains on stuff but didn't really do much with our spirits. So he recognized that there needs to be a mixture of meditative stuff, of contemplation, the mystical side of faith that informs the active side of faith. That when we try to jump into action too quickly, sometimes we make major missteps and we miss things entirely. But if we approach our life from a more contemplative place, we're more likely to be in step with the Spirit. So that's kind of what he's all about. So this is what Richard Rohr has to say about this whole idea of incarnation, about God being here now. He says, We daringly believe that God's presence was poured into a single human being so that humanity and divinity can be seen to be operating as one in him and therefore in us. But instead of saying that God came into the world through Jesus, maybe it would be better to say that Jesus came out of an already Christ-soaked world. 
The second incarnation flowed out of the first, out of God's loving union with physical creation. I think where Jesus stands in contrast to the other great Jewish leaders, the greatest prophets, Elijah and Elisha, is that Jesus brings this variable in a new way. This idea that God is truly intertwined in us and within us. And because we saw it in Jesus, we can see it in ourselves. And if he's right about this, then that suggests that we have a seeing problem, a vision problem. That we have a hard time seeing what is right there in front of us at all times. And so I came across a person uh, that I want to share with you today. Um, her name is Amy Herman, and she wrote a book called A Lesson. Actually, she, um, she has a book. Oh, shoot, what's the title of it? She has several books out, but it has to do with how we see things, particularly with art. So I have a brief TED Talk that I want you to hear, and then we'll come back and see if that has anything to do with what we're talking about today. Here it goes. Look at this work of art. What is it that you see? At first glance, it looks to be a grandfather clock with a sheet thrown over it and a rope tied around the center. But a first look always warrants a second. Look again. What do you see now? If you look more closely, you'll realize that this entire work of art is made from one piece of sculpture. There is no clock, there is no rope, and there is no sheet. It is one piece of bleached Honduras mahogany. Now let me be clear, this exercise was not about looking at sculpture. It's about looking, and understanding that looking closely can save a life, change your company, and even help you understand why your children behave the way that they do. It's a skill that I call visual intelligence, and I use works of art to teach everybody, from everyday people to those for whom looking is the job, like Navy SEALs and homicide detectives and trauma nurses. The fact is that no matter how skilled you might be at looking, you still have so much to learn about seeing. Because we all think we get it in a first glance and a sudden flash. But the real skill is in understanding how to look slowly and how to look more carefully. The talent is in remembering, in the crush of the daily urgencies that demand our attention, to step back and look through those lenses to help us see what we've been missing all along. So how can looking at painting and sculpture help? Because art is a powerful tool. It's a powerful tool that engages both sight and insight and reframes our understanding of where we are and what we see. Here's an example of a work of art that reminded me that visual intelligence, it's an ongoing learning process and one that really is never mastered. I came across this quiet, seemingly abstract painting and I had to step up to it twice, even three times, to understand why it resonated so deeply. Now, I've seen the Washington Monument in person thousands of times, well aware of the change in the color of marble a third of the way up, but I had never really looked at it 
out of context or truly as a work of art. And here, Georgia O'Keeffe's painting of this architectural icon made me realize that if we put our mind to it, it's possible to see everyday things in a wholly new and eye-opening perspective. Now, there are some skeptics that believe that art just belongs in an art museum. They believe that it has no practical use beyond its aesthetic value. I know who they are in every audience I teach. Their arms are crossed, their legs are crossed, their body language is saying, what am I gonna learn from this lady who talks fast about painting and sculpture? So how do I make it relevant for them? I ask them to look at this work of art, like this portrait by Kumi Yamashita. And I ask them to step in close, and even closer still. And while they're looking at the work of art, they need to be asking questions about what they see. And if they ask the right questions, like, what is this work of art? Is it a painting? Is it a sculpture? What is it made of? They will find out that this entire work of art is made of a wooden board, 10,000 nails, and one unbroken piece of sewing thread. Now that might be interesting to some of you, but what does it have to do with the work that these people do? And the answer is everything. Because we all interact with people multiple times on a daily basis, and we need to get better at asking questions about what it is that we see. Learning to frame the question in such a way to elicit the information that we need to do our jobs is a critical life skill. Like the radiologist who told me that looking at the negative spaces in a painting helped her discern more discrete abnormalities in an MRI. Or the police officer who said that understanding the emotional dynamic between people in a painting helped him to read body language at a domestic violence crime scene. And it enabled him to think twice before drawing and firing his weapon. And even parents can look to see the absences of color in paintings to understand that what their children say to them is as important as what they don't say. So how do I, how do I train to be more visually intelligent? It comes down to four A's. Every new situation, every new problem, we practice four A's. First, we assess our situation. We ask, what do we have in front of us? Then we analyze it. We say, what's important? What do I need? What don't I need? Then we articulate it in a conversation, in a memo, in a text, in an email, and then we act. We make a decision. We all do this multiple times a day, but we don't realize what a role seeing and looking plays in all of those actions and how visual intelligence can really improve everything. So recently, I had a group of counterterrorism officials at a museum in front of this painting, El Greco's painting, The Purification of the Temple, in which Christ in the center, in a sweeping and violent gesture, is expelling the sinners from the temple of prayer. The group of counterterrorism officials had five minutes with that painting, and in that short amount of time, they had to assess the situation, analyze the details, articulate what, if anything, they would do if they were in that painting. As you can imagine, observations and insights differed. Who would they talk to? Who would be the best witness? Who was a good potential witness? Who was lurking? Who had the most information? But my favorite comment came from a seasoned cop who looked at the central figure and said, you see that guy in the pink, referring to Christ? He said, I'd collar him, he's causing all the trouble. 
So looking at art gives us a perfect vehicle to rethink how we solve problems without the aid of technology. Looking at the work of Felix Gonzalez Torres, you see two clocks in perfect synchronicity. The hour, minute, and second hand perfectly aligned. They are installed side by side and they're touching. And they are entitled, untitled, perfect lovers. But closer analysis makes you realize that these are two battery-operated clocks, which in turn makes you understand, hey, wait a minute, one of those batteries is going to stop before the other. One of those clocks is going to slow down and die before the other, and it's going to alter the symmetry of the artwork. Just articulating that thought process includes the necessity of a contingency plan. You need to have contingencies for the unforeseen, the unexpected, and the unknown whenever and however they may happen. Now, using art to increase our visual intelligence involves planning for contingencies, understanding the big picture and the small details, and noticing what's not there. So in this painting by Magritte, noticing that there are no tracks under the train, there is no fire in the fireplace, and there are no candles in the candlesticks actually more accurately describes the painting than if you were to say, well, there's a train coming out of a fireplace and there are candlesticks on the mantle. It may sound counterintuitive to say what isn't there, but it's really a very valuable tool. When a detective who had learned about visual intelligence in North Carolina was called to the crime scene, it was a boating fatality, and the eyewitness told this detective that the boat had flipped over and the occupant had drowned underneath. Now, instinctively, crime scene investigators look for what is apparent, but this detective did something different. He looked for what wasn't there, which is harder to do. And he raised the question, if the boat had really flipped over, as the eyewitness said that it did, how come the papers that were kept at one end of the boat were completely dry? Based on that one small but critical observation, the investigation shifted from accidental death to homicide. Now, equally important to saying what isn't there is the ability to find visual connections where they may not be apparent. Like Marie Watts's totem pole of blankets, it illustrates that finding hidden connections in everyday objects can resonate so deeply. The artist collected blankets from all different people in her community, and she had the owners of the blankets write on a tag the significance of the blanket to the family. Some of the blankets had been used for baby blankets. Some of them had been used as picnic blankets. Some of them had been used for the dog. We all have blankets in our homes and understand the significance that they play. But similarly, I instruct new doctors, when they walk into a patient's room, before they pick up that medical chart, just look around the room. Are there balloons or cards or that special blanket on the bed that tells the doctor there's a connection to the outside world? If that patient has someone in the outside world to assist them and help them, the doctor can implement the best care with that connection in mind. In medicine, people are connected as humans before they're identified as doctor and patient. But this method of enhancing perception, it need not be disruptive and it doesn't necessitate an overhaul in looking. Like Jorge Mendez Blake's sculpture of building a brick wall above Kafka's book, El Castillo, shows that more astute observation can be subtle and yet invaluable. You can discern the book 
and you can see how it disrupted the symmetry of the bricks directly above it. But by the time you get to the end of the sculpture, you can no longer see the book. But looking at the work of art in its entirety, you see that the impact of the work's disruption on the bricks is nuanced and unmistakable. One thought, one idea, one innovation can alter an approach, change a process, and even save lives. I've been teaching visual intelligence for over 15 years, and to my great amazement and astonishment, to my never-ending astonishment and amazement, I have seen that looking at art with a critical eye can help to anchor us in our world of uncharted waters, whether you are a paramilitary trooper, a caregiver, a doctor, or a mother. Because let's face it, things go wrong. <laughs> things go wrong. And don't misunderstand me, I'd eat that donut in a minute. But we need to understand the consequences of what it is that we observe, and we need to convert observable details into actionable knowledge. Like Jennifer Odom's sculpture of tables standing sentinel on the banks of the Mississippi River in New Orleans, guarding against the threat of post-Katrina floodwaters and rising up against adversity, we too have the ability to act affirmatively and affect positive change. I have been mining the world of art to help people across the professional spectrum to see the extraordinary in the everyday, to articulate what is absent, and to be able to inspire creativity and innovation no matter how small, and most importantly, to forge human connections where they may not be apparent, empowering us all to see our work and the world writ large with a new set of eyes. Thank you. Smart and art is in way big capital letters and the S and the M are kind of working up to that, which kind of helped make sense. I think Jesus was one of these people uh, that, and there's different ways to see Jesus, so you don't have to take total issue with me, but I, for me, what is really resonating with me about Jesus, I think he was the first with the most understanding of the interconnectedness of everything and how the Spirit of God uh, was truly everywhere and in him and it radically changed his life. That's what made him such a peacekeeper, such a shalom sower. And I don't think he could not see God anywhere. I think he always saw God everywhere, and it changed his steps. It's a matter of seeing. Uh, author Madeline Langle uh, saw incarnation this way. She says, A sky full of God's children, each galaxy, each star, each living creature, every particle and subatomic particle of creation, we are all children of the Maker. From a subatomic particle with a lifespan of a few seconds to a galaxy with a lifespan of billions of years, to us human creatures somewhere in the middle in size and age, we are children of God made in God's image. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Christ, the Maker of the universe and perhaps many universes, willingly and lovingly leaving all that power and coming to this poor, sin-filled planet to live with us for a few years to show us what we ought to be and could be. Christ came to us as Jesus of Nazareth, holy human and holy divine, to show us what it means to be made in God's image. Jesus, as Paul reminds us, was the firstborn of many brethren. And then she says this, 
I stand on the deck of my cottage, looking at the sky full of God's children, knowing that I am one of many brethren and sistren too, and that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Bathed in this love, I go into the cottage and to bed. What if we saw the world like that? Uh, this author, next author, is Kelly Nicandia. I think I got that pretty close. Uh, she says this about uh, Jesus' birth and incarnation. The Advent narratives demand we take the political and economic world of Roman Palestine seriously. The Gospel writers named the empires of Caesar and Herod not for dramatic effect. They didn't mention a census or massacre for literary flourish. The Gospel writers used contextual markers to describe in concrete ways the turmoil of the times that hosted the first advent. It is this very context that makes the advent narratives contemporary, whether in Israel, Palestine, or lands beyond. Our troubled times shaped by all manner of injustice cause continued suffering, making the loud cries of lament and cries for peace timely as they are answered by advent. The Incarnation positions Jesus among the most vulnerable people, the bereft and threatened of society. The first advent shows God wrestling with the struggles common to many the world over. And from this disadvantaged stance, Jesus lives out God's peace agenda as a counter-testimony to Caesar's peace. And then she says this, This is the story of Advent. We join Jesus as incarnations of God's peace on this earth for however long it takes. God walks in deep solidarity with humanity, sharing in our sufferings and moments of hope. Amid our hardship, God is with us. Emmanuel remains the name on our lips in troubled times. And then there's Greg Boyle. Father Greg Boyle, founder of the Homeboy Industries uh, in L.A., which uh, reaches out to gang members in particular. And he has this to say, We remember the sacred by our reverence. This is the esteem we extend to the reality revealed to us. Jesus didn't abandon his reality. He lived it. He ran away from nothing and sought some wise path through everything. He engaged in it all with acceptance. He had an eye out always for cherishing his reality. A homie, one of the gang members that his ministry has helped, Leo, wrote me. He gets a little crass here just for your virgin ears, so you know that. Leo writes, I'm going to, I mean, this is a former gang guy, right? Listen to what he's saying. I'm going to trust God's constancy of love to hover over my crazy ass. <laughs> I'm fervent in my efforts to cultivate holy desires. And then Boyle continues, this is how we find this other kind of stride and joyful engagement in our cherished reality. The holy rests in every single thing. Yes, it hovers over our crazy asses. <laughs> he goes on, I always liked that St. Kateri Tikakwita's name, Tikakwita, means she who bumps into things. What if holiness is a contact sport and we are meant to bump into things? This is what it means to embrace a contemplative, mystical way of seeing wholeness. 
It gives a window into complexity and keeps us from judging and scapegoating and demonizing. If we allow ourselves to bump into things, then we quit measuring. We cease to bubble wrap ourselves against reality. We stop trying to homeschool our way through the world so that the world won't touch us. Hard to embrace the world if we are so protective and defensively shielded from it. A homie, one of his gang kids, once told me, it's taken me all these years to see the real world. And once you see it, there's only God there. Boyle closes the gap between the secular and the sacred with this quote. We don't want to distance the secular, but always bring it closer. It's only then that ordinary things and moments become epiphanies of God's presence. Some man said to me once, I want to become more spiritual. Yet God is inviting us to inhabit the fullness of our humanity. God holds out wholeness to us. Let's not settle for just spiritual. We are sacramental to our core when we think that everything is holy. The holy not just found in the supernatural, but in the incarnational here and now. The truth is that sacraments are happening all the time if we have the eyes to see. The infinite is present in all. Rachel Held Evans, <clears throat> uh, her life cut short, too fast, too soon. <clears throat> A brilliant uh, writer. Uh, she says this about Mary and incarnation. To understand Mary's humanity and her central role in Jesus' story is to remind ourselves of the true miracle of the incarnation. And that is the core Christian conviction, conviction that God is with us, plain old ordinary us. God is with us in our fears and in our pain, in our morning sickness and in our ear infections, in our refugee crises and in our endurance of empire, in smelly barns and unimpressive backwater towns, in the labor pains of a new mother and in the cries of a tiny infant. In all these things, God is with us and God is for us. These are rich quotes that I found in my readings this week, all about incarnation. What I think really this story is about, this story is about many things, but this idea that God is with us in this way, in this rich of a way, and that Jesus simply showed us what is possible for all of us, that what is true of Jesus is also true of us, that we are, <laughs> we are the ongoing incarnation of God. If we can train our eyes to see it. So we have a final closing prayer, which also showed up in my reading this week. I know it's kind of small print. You'll just have to deal with that. <laughs> I do want to tell you, too, that all the quotes that I've been reading and the, the extended stuff is in the blog today. So if you want to go check those out, you're welcome to do that. So this is the closing and opening prayer. I love that. So it's a closing prayer, but it's a prayer to open us as well. God, Lord of all creation, lover of life and of everything, please help us to love in our very small way what you love infinitely and everywhere. We thank you that we can offer just this one prayer, and that will be more than enough, because in reality, everything and everyone is connected, and nothing stands alone. To pray for one part 
is really to pray for the whole. And so we do. Help us each day to stand for love, for healing, for the good, for the diverse unity of the body of Christ and all creation, because we know this is what you desire, as Jesus prayed, that all may be one. We offer our prayer together with all the holy names of God. We offer our prayer together with Christ, our Lord. Amen.